But at the end of the day, if you're getting groups of people to work together, individualization is probably one of the most poisonous things that you could possibly do with your approach. Because if you're treating everyone different, you're ignoring the team. So I always like, now I'm going by, I don't believe in snow, the snowflake approach. I believe in the snowman approach where you know you see a snowman and you know it's compiled of probably millions of snowflakes, right? And there's all these different little individualizations, but ultimately it's a snowman. It's one thing together. And you are aware that there it's made up of snowflakes, but ultimately you care about the snowman melting or staying together. And if some snowflakes don't want to be a part of that anymore, you got to let them go. That was Rachel Balkovic, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our longtime sponsor, Simply Faster. There are a lot of sports technology companies out there, but Simply Faster is the only website you can go to that features an online store that covers the bandwidth of training technology, from force plates to timing systems to muscle simulators and more. Some products of Simply Faster that I use and love include things like the free lap timing system in KBox or coaches' favorites such as GymAware. Recently, Simply Faster has added two units that as a coach, you should definitely take a look at. The first is the Muscle Lab Contact Grid which is an extremely affordable and portable step-by-step, literally, system to collect data on jumps, bounds, sprints, agility, hurdle hops, and really as much as your creative mind can imagine. In what used to take a whole runway worth of collecting of data collecting strips, the contact grid does it all with only two small strips that together cover up to 40 meters of sprinting. Ground contact time, step rates, rhythms, and beyond are at your fingertips with this device. Another new unit, the VO2 Master, is an ultra-portable gas exchange analyzer. Don't guess on energy system development when you can get direct insight into VO2 capabilities in relation to specific sports skills, rather than uh, being hooked up to tubes on a treadmill or worse yet, a cycle ergometer to get a VO2 Max. Think of the VO2 Master as your own gas exchange lab without the tubes and wires. Deepen your analysis in the specific conditioning preparation of your athletes with the VO2 Master today. These products and incredible customer service make Simply Faster your go-to for your sports technology needs. I'm happy to have partnered with them in sponsoring this podcast. Their support has been tremendous, so check them out today at simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. Coaching can take a lot of forms. It's it is working with athletes in the weight room, it is working with athletes in a sports skill setting, it is working with people in a leadership or in any leadership-based situation. And it's and as much as I love getting into the minutia of, for the sake of this podcast, human performance topics, getting the most out of ourselves from an athletic perspective, it is critical to zoom out and take a big picture look of not only the interrelationships of, say, strength and conditioning and sport coaching, which is important, but also the higher the higher principles of what leads, uh, what makes a winning team and winning organization in general. If you don't look at the, that stuff, you're just kind of putting your head. I feel like it's kind of the ostrich effect. Uh, it's very easy to get buried in minutia and not look at things like the greater culture that is at hand and communication within the team and within the organization. Okay, off my off that little, I'm, I'm getting on a tangent before I even start doing the introduction here. So our guest today is Rachel Belkovic. She is a professional baseball hitting coach working with the New York Yankees 
Rachel made headlines when she became the first minor league strength and conditioning coordinator, which was with the St. Louis Cardinals, and spent almost a decade in the strength and conditioning sector. Rachel has shared her story on a number of podcasts. It's one of grit and resilience. And as she says, she is not done yet. Rachel having that safety net, safe and good job in that strength and conditioning sector, left strength and conditioning and went to Europe to work on a second master's degree and then took that step to be a sport coach. And as she'll mention, she has uh, aspirations that go beyond just being a sport coach and a hitting coach. So she's moving through this industry on a variety of levels, on a variety of identities, you could say. And she has some awesome wisdom to share, uh, not only with things that, that deal with the interrelationship of strength coaching and sport coaching, but also with things that deal with a winning organization in general. So on the show today, we're going to get into her experience as a strength coach and how that's helped her in her current role in working in the sports skill setting, as well as a rear view mirror take on sports performance in general and some general points from an organizational leadership perspective on how strength coaches and administrators can understand and appreciate and work together better. The second half of this show is on organizational leadership, principles that make successful teams and businesses and cultures really just that successful. No matter where you work, whether you're the strength coach, the sport coach, the AD, whatever you are, I don't think there's too many ADs listening to this show, but uh, wherever you are, it's stuff that is absolutely critical to know because you are a piece of a great something greater when you work in the level of team sports. And it's really important to know what is critic what is important what is truly important to push that forward and to reach the highest levels rachel gets into things like tough love how parenting and coaching are related holding athletes to a high standard and a high demand and much more this was a great show on a lot of levels and a great way to zoom out to take a uh, 10,000 20,000 foot view at this whole thing called coaching and what it really takes to build a successful organization so all that said, let's get on to it. Episode 194 with Rachel Belkovic. You had a good job as a strength coach and now you're a hitting coach. So could you tell us a little bit about that jump that you made and what made you want to go from strength and conditioning to where you are now? Um, well, I'll just, yeah, I can make this shorter. I can make it long. The, the short story is uh, I want to be a general manager. The long story is I you know, I was looking at where strength and conditioning is as a profession. I'm looking at how much I can contribute, I'm looking at um, how much I can contribute from a culture standpoint, you know, and, and what that means. And so I think overall, I was getting a little bit, I was feeling a little bit caged in a sense where you can create as great of a culture as you want in the weight room, but you're still at the mercy of five other people on your immediate staff and then also administration and, and whatever. And so I just really am fascinated by organizational culture. And I just finally dawned on me that if I wanted to really make the biggest impact on a team at large, like the entire organization, then I obviously have to be at the top of that. Now you of course can make an impact from your seat as a strength coach or your seat as a janitor. Like I don't care how far down the line that you are and, and whatever you can brighten a room um, but I definitely think there's something to be said for having a larger role if you can be in an administrative position. And so you're seeing a lot of strength coaches do this in college now where you're going from strength and conditioning to assistant athletic director over performance, something like that, where you have a seat at the table and you're being asked 
more direct questions about, you know, probably um, more of like bird's eye view, grander scale things. And so you're seeing it happen in college where this is just my step in professional sports. And now you're like, wait, wait a second. You just said you want to be a GM. Why not be a scout? Why be a hitting coach? That doesn't make sense. Um, cause a lot of people, when I said, I, I want to be a hitting coach and I want to be a GM, they're like, that doesn't, what, like, what are you talking about? And so with the move to hitting coach is really just so I can get like a better feel for player evaluation, coach evaluation, just a, a different perspective, something that is, that I haven't thought about. Like I haven't thought about what it means to be in a two O count with a runner on second base since I was playing softball in college. So I want to get back to like the game, right? Like really being evaluate, being able to evaluate defenses and what to do in what situation. So that when I do go into administration, I am a more well-rounded administrator that can evaluate different departments and have a better understanding of what those people go through. Yeah. That was it, a long answer. <laughs> that's okay. No, it could have been a lot longer. I Well, and I want to actually ask a question that, I think maybe goes expands on that a little bit. And that's back when you were an athlete, why did you decide to go to strength and conditioning versus, cause you were a softball player yourself, right? Like, and mm-hmm. what made you decide, Hey, I want to go the strength and conditioning route instead of the, the, the sport coaching route or the hitting route or those types of things. I really took to the weight room because I had a very lackluster career on field because I had, um, the yips. I don't know if, I, if for people who don't know what that is, I mean, it's pretty common in like, you know, golf, basketball, like these things happen. But in softball, I was a catcher and I like basically more or less had extreme game anxiety and lost the ability to throw the ball back to the pitcher, which is like actually pretty common. And it's not it's not an unknown thing in baseball and softball. Um, but I had it like the worst. Like I just in any kind of pressure situation and it, and it ended up being when it was at the, at the worst, I couldn't even do it like in a practice situation. So I just, even though I was just like really physically capable athlete, I just could not put it together on the field. Um, hard work. I mean, I was the, I was the workhorse. I showed up early. I stayed late. I did put in all the work and just one plus one was not equaling two at all. Like no matter how hard I work, I had this like mental anxiety, mental skills was not, what it is now you know we did not have a mental skills person my coach tried to help me send me to a to a psychologist on campus that was not a sports psychologist I was embarrassed it was the whole thing so anyway I really took the weight room and like that was really my only way to in some ways have like an identity as an athlete was just to like crush it in the weight room and no matter what was going on in the field I could go into the weight room and one plus one equaled two like you work hard, you put, you push yourself, you will see results in that area. So it was just a very direct, like, okay, I can apply my hard work somewhere that I can at least see a payoff. And I could at least have some shred of confidence in myself as a young, as a young person, as a young woman. So I just really like flourished in the weight room. I loved it. Um, I had a great relationship with my strength coach and I just was like, I want to make this a career. So yet again, a long story, but I think there's like some pretty important anecdotes that tell you a lot about me in that because you know the whole yips thing i mean the end of my career like my career ended because of basically like a a sports performance mental anxiety and that's something that really really gives me a unique perspective as a coach today yeah it's and obviously you wouldn't have had the path that you did unless you had those because i'm sure at the time it was probably devastating for you as an athlete and horrible i yeah it was into 
I was in depression. I was for sure in a depression. It was horrible. Yeah, it's to me, it is always interesting. We get a fair amount of interns and I've worked with a lot of interns and I always ask them what what led you into this. And I feel like you get quite a few different answers. And I think that it's interesting. It is always interesting to hear where people come from in that regard. So and once you uh, so what was your um, and I'm sure too like that that whole process and, and the coaches you've had and 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 how that impacted you. You've probably kept a lot of that. I mean, we wear a lot of hats as coaches, you know, even if you're a. Uh, uh, depending on what kind of team you work with, if it's a small school, you're probably the strength coach, the hitting coach, and the sports psychologist. You're you're all that in one, and the larger <laughs> organization you get. But I think we always wear multiple hats, and and I'm sure that that's all. It sounds like you have like a big, um, a lot of really impactful things that have happened that have helped you on your way up the ladder through these different, um, these different. I guess you call them like different identities. I know you've talked about that before. Yeah. Um... Oh man, I I always like to say I'm a chameleon, and I I mean I resonate with a lot of I can relate to a lot of different people. I can I share really strange experiences with you know people that wouldn't think it, and um, even even like the Latin players in in professional baseball. It's funny how on the outside we look like completely different human beings, and realistically like i relate to them almost sometimes more than the the american players at times because i feel like they're almost ostracized or forgotten about sometimes and i just relate to them as being like an outcast almost or an underdog and so i i definitely think those experiences in college you know it's it's important to be successful in sports as a coach but in some ways it's also important like i i just view my massive failures as something that catapulted me as a coach and has made me very unique. And just the other day in my current job, the coaches were standing around. We were talking about this guy who seems as if he's dealing with a little bit of anxiety. Like he's just not able to put it together. He's not really like, it seems as if he's nervous and all the coaches were standing around. They're like, man, I don't know how to have that conversation with him. Like that's a really uncomfortable conversation. If you're going to approach some guy and ask him if he's nervous and, and I just thought, it's not uncomfortable for me. Like, let me handle that because I've I been there. Like, I've felt that. And I look at him and there's no question he's dealing with anxiety on the field. And I, I feel that. So I definitely feel like I can relate to people in ways that other coaches can't because I've had such a variety of experiences um, because of all of the places that I've lived, because of being discriminated against, being an underdog going through all the difficulties and struggles and failures that I have, I'm just like, I feel like a superhuman. I'm like, cool. Now I can talk to people about the most awkward topics, you know? For sure. And it seems like with all those hardships you've had to overcome, it's almost seems like, and I know you've talked about this in other shows, but you wouldn't have it any other way, but to go the difficult route of getting into men's sports, you know, versus it probably would have been very easy just to get an Olympic sports position at a various school and work off of that or women's basketball or something like that. But you went the, the road less traveled. Yeah. And like, obviously nothing against anyone who does work for women's sports, because for sure. sometimes I, when I'm around, if I, if I go and speak to a, a women's team, I'm like, Oh, I feel so at home. You know, like, <laughs> I'm like, man, these are my people. Like I was a college athlete and I just highly appreciate uh, women's athletics and I support it. But just like everyone else, everyone has their dreams and goals. And I think, 
being in men's sports, it's what I wanted to do because I was fascinated by professional baseball and just the minor leagues and Latin America and all those things. I truly wanted to be in professional baseball specifically, but the little cherry on top was like, it was hard, you know? And when I was discriminated against and had some struggles getting in, there was a little, there was like a, you know, I wanted to get in anyway, because you can't, you can't, if your motivation is solely to like prove people wrong, that's only going to carry you so far. But at the time when I was trying to get in and I was having trouble getting in, I just thought like, okay, like you want to fucking go, let's go. Like I was this is like this competitiveness of like, Oh, you're going to discriminate against me. Like, that's cute. I'm not going anywhere. You know, I was like, okay, now it's a game and I'm about to win. So watch me. That again is not my main motivation for doing anything, by the way. Like I'm not competing with anyone, but like I said, it was a cherry on top and it was something where I also just felt like I had been so fortunate to have like strong mentors and parents and coaches. And I was like, I, you know, there's other women who have been discriminated against like me and they quit and I, I'm not going to quit. Like I, I got to do this now. Like it was, it was, it be, very quickly became a personal mission on top of just wanting to be in it, you know? It's kind of like you were doing it for everybody in a sense, or at least all the females who had run into those roadblocks. 100%. Like I felt that immediately and it's only grown over the years where, you know, I, I like, I literally feel like I have to do this. I thankfully also want to do it and enjoy it and love it. But I also like, I know that especially in this last contract that I signed with the Yankees to be a hitting coach, it's like, when I signed out that dotted line, I signed up for two jobs and I, and I was fully aware of that. And I'm, it's just how it is. If I wasn't ready for that, then I shouldn't have signed up for it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And it sounds like I'm sure that obviously your journey isn't done. You talk about that too. Uh, and maybe after you're, you're a GM someday, maybe your retirement job can be women's sports. So you're going to get that, get that when you're all, when it's all said and done, maybe, I don't know. Yeah, there'll be, um, I mean, yeah, I, I would, for anyone who doesn't know what you're referencing, I always, one of the only hashtags that I ever use on Instagram is I'm not done yet. And that's not like a personal, like, watch me go. I'm not done yet. It's like, I'm not done yet. I still have work to do. I have work to do for myself to develop, but I also have work to do for others and for women. And like, we're not done yet. You know, shit's, it's like, oh, yay. Like Yankees hired the first woman ever. But then meanwhile, right now, what's going on with like the U.S. women's soccer team and them battling for equal pay? Like, what the fuck? You know, we, we have work to do. And, and the hashtag I'm not done yet is like, it's not about me. It's not about, it could be easily misconstrued where you see me, I post lifting videos and I'm not done yet. I'm going to lift more weight has nothing to do with that. It's very much a general, like we've got work to do collectively. Um, and I plan to, you know, keep that heavy on my heart as a responsibility. Yeah. I think the, the greater, especially with something like strength and conditioning, that's so interdisciplinary. Sometimes I, I think there's always a lot more there than just the nature of the job. And then, so I think it's really interesting, uh, your experience in there and then how you've, you've grown out of it or grow, not, I shouldn't say grown out of it, but how you've grown through yeah. it and gone to the next, um, the next level of things that you're headed. And so I, one thing I did want to say, and I did want to get a little bit into some of the insights that you have in regards to having been in the strength and conditioning world. And now you're the sport coach. So how, are you still in terms of doing the strength and conditioning then? I'm, you have, 
I'm assuming you have uh, someone who does that for you now. Like you are d- now just doing hitting and not doing strength and conditioning. Like is that is that tough for you sometimes, or how is that? How is that going? You know what? Um, it's not tough. <laughs> it's not tough. I, I I I'm not again. I'm not trying to. I don't know if that's an expected answer or not. But it's not tough because my passion has always been coaching, and I do. You know, I don't resonate with. Like when coaches are like, man, I just love to sit down and like program for hours and periodization just like gets me going. Like that's never been me. Never, not once. Um, I, I am fascinated by it and fascinated by the human body. I, and I believe that it's important, obviously. And I just went back for a second master's degree in biomechanics and statistics. And I believe it to be hugely important. But my passion, truthfully, has always been like coaching and affecting human behavior and human development. And so being a hitting coach, like truthfully is not that different for me personally, based off of how I view strength and conditioning. It's just coaching. Now I'm just coaching the body to do something else that I was coaching the body to do squatting and lunging before. And now I'm coaching it to do something else, which by the way, I'm still coaching human movement. I'm still talking about hinge and rotation and thoracic mobility and, you know, like the function of the foot and the hip. And I'm still talking about all those things. And now I'm just doing it in the the batting cages instead of the weight room. And so for me, um, it's really not that big of a transition. Personally, I don't view it to be, obviously the world views it to be very different, but inside my head, it's it's pretty similar. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Do you find yourself, I mean, I guess it's hard to say because you haven't, uh, it, I guess you weren't like a hitting coach and then a strength coach and then a hitting coach. So I don't know what like associated principles there are, but I, what I'm trying to say is do you feel like there's things that are, you're taking with you out of the strength training realm that you are actively like you, you did just kind of say it with the way you're coaching yeah. movement and things, but is it, do you feel like it's easier to get to the root of some issues because like you might see strength deficits and say it's this like, or does that play into it at all really in terms of how yeah. you're now working with the, the hitting? Yeah. Absolutely. Isn't it? a? It's like every, every like strength coach's dream, right. Is to have a sport coach who used to be a strange. Cause then you're like, Oh, like instead of me as a strength coach, begging the hitting coach to be like, Hey, this guy needs to put on 20 pounds if you want him to hit home runs. Right. And like, you're like trying to convince and convince and convince. Now I have the ability, which I have not done yet, but I, I will have the ability to, as I progress with the Yankees, I can look at a kid and and go to the strength coach and go, look, this kid needs to put on 20 pounds. (laughs) We're going to take away some time from in the cages and you get to be a strength coach and like lift four times a week until this kid puts on 20 pounds of muscle. So it's, it's excellent in that way. It's also excellent. And like, I take so much from my strength and conditioning background, as far as like being just watching a guy walk, seeing his posture, seeing his movement patterns and understanding how that might affect his swing. And then being able, again, this is, I'm still, you know, at this moment, very new to the job, but I, I like, am already watching these bodies walk around and go, okay, he's got excessive anterior tilt. Um, okay. His toes are pointed way the heck out. Okay. He looks like he probably has a little bit of a deficit in his posterior chain. Like he's super quad dominant, which who isn't, but it's like those things are hugely transferable. Also, fortunately for me, my boss, who's awesome, Dylan Lawson, he has a background in strength and conditioning, um, has a master's degree in kinesiology, and he's the hitting coordinator for the Yankees. So, and the, which, by the way, is obviously part of the reason why he hired me is because he sees huge value in understanding the human body. 
So he's, you know, our methodology, he teaches the players about hip hinge. What does that mean? What does it look like in a swing? Why is it important? What about the load? How are we loading our hips? Like he's teaching those things that are right in my vocabulary already for the past 10 years. So it's been hugely important to have the mindset from a physical standpoint. And also some things that I think that probably are less obvious is like periodization. That's something that is just the most common thing ever in strength and conditioning, but in hitting or pitching or whatever, pitch, pitching is still, it's pretty common to have like pitch counts and stuff nowadays, but in hitting, it's really not a guy could go in the cages and hit for, you know, six hours and they just, you know, we just let them sometimes. And so being better at periodization and percentages and such. So if we're working on mechanics that we like try to basically intentionally lower exit velocity, um, or are we working on bat speed where we're intentionally trying to just go all out and take gorilla hacks and try to swing as hard as we can. Like just the ideas of periodization, I think are probably less thought about in that way, but that also has been hugely helpful to come from a strength and conditioning background to sport coaching. Yeah, I was, as you were talking before, I was thinking I should make a list of like all the strength coaches who are now sport coaches, like, cause they are popping up here and there. And it's like, I think that to improve any field, I think that someone has to almost come from outside the field or at least just to get, to get more ideas uh, into the mix. And so I think that's very important. I, with uh, the periodization as well, I mean, what, I mean, just in your time so far, like what, if you're going through the course of a season and you're doing, I mean, this is, I don't know. I don't know very much. I quit baseball when I was 12. So I'm, I loved it. I, it was my favorite sport for two years for sure. Um, but so what would you be, uh, what would like be a process then if now you have this hat and you're not the strength coach anymore, now you get to coach the, you're like a higher, uh, totem, higher on the totem pole of high performance. What are you looking at for a, like a potential for how you might go through, let's just say you have three months with somebody like, how are you looking at arranging that? Okay. Well, I can't speak exactly to what, like a we're going to do or what we should do i'm just like this is like ideal situation rachel's doing stuff and this is outside of the yankees type of thing but basically if you apply like general periodization principles to hitting you would a have days off which never happens oh, <laughs> like, yeah, guys are always in the cages you know it's because they can it's because they can like pitchers pitchers have this beautiful thing called a radar gun that is on every single pitch that they throw and they have pitch counts where like you don't go in as a pitcher, you don't go and throw a bullpen and throw a hundred pitches. You just don't because you can't handle it. Like your arm cannot handle it. And if, and if a pitcher threw every single day full intent, that would be horrible. That'd be career ending. But a hitter, you can go in the cages every single day and take a million swings and feasibly like not really know the difference. Well, having radar guns and being able to like say, Hey, you're dropping off. You're not in your, you know, whatever 80 to hundred percent range of your exit velocity and what you normally are. I think you're tired. We need to cut it or just limiting swings and have it in periodizing swings, you know, like one day a week, it should just be, Hey, okay, take your swings to get ready for the game. Be, be warm, be ready. But like, we're not doing a hundred swings today. And then you have one day of the week where it's extremely high intensity and you're only swinging as hard as you can. And not really worrying about mechanics, et cetera. And then another day you're doing lower intent and you're working on mechanics, but like basically being able to have undulating periodization where it's just like, there's some kind of variety as opposed to in, in pre previous times in professional baseball or just in baseball period. Even when I was playing softball growing up, it's like you go to the cage and you take a million hacks 
endlessly just because you can and you don't know if you're you don't know if you're tired and you're like deteriorating you don't really know that because you can take a million hacks so um just being a little bit smart about the way that we go about it from a periodization standpoint i think you know is something i hope that i can bring into the conversation and and you know to credit the one working with they're aware of that you know like i said my boss has a background in strength and conditioning and understanding human performance so you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, it seems like in looking at the strength coaches that have become sport coaches, I know a guest I've had on the show, Miguel Aragoncio, he was like a strength coach and a break dancer with, I don't think he'd played much, if any, baseball at all. And That's he awesome. works for, I think he was doing some stuff with Driveline, or I, I know he, he works, um, I'm not 100% sure now, but I know he does works with pitchers. And it seems like pitching is a real easy thing for strength coaches to jump into because it's very quantified. It's that you have that drop off and, and it's very easy, I think, to get into the mechanical aspects of did you throw faster or didn't you? And so do you, is it yeah. a thing to like measure bat speed and drop offs or anything like that? Like you're okay, your bat speed's slowing down now. Now we'll cut the session or anything like that. Um, again, I just, that's not as commonplace in hitting. It's just not like, the, I think it's getting there, especially because hitting and, and no one would get upset with me saying this. I don't think like hitting is behind pitching in the technology space. Um, again, because like the radar gun has been around in pitching for forever and hitting is just now coming around to like K vest, there's blast motion, there's, there's hit tracks, there's reps, photo hitting, like there's, there's now technology to measure it. So I think, and that's, we're talking about in the past, like few years not not 10 or 15 but in the past few years hitting has now been privy to more technology to measure these things which then then it takes a few years for people to go huh wait a second this is like dropping off over the season or whatever and go wait whoa we need to train differently to make sure that we're maximizing people we're maximizing people's ability to perform so it's not really commonplace at the moment for that to happen however i think that's like right around the corner for a lot of people. Um, and I know some people are out there doing it. Uh, driveline is one of those places where they're just playing close attention to people's bat speed. Um, at, like I was just at driveline for six months and they would be in a session and go, okay, like, dude, you're not even close to your peak bat speed anymore. You know, So like, we're done, you know, we're cutting it. It's not just like, it's not the old school, like one more coach and then 20 swings later, you know, you're still there. So I think that's coming around the corner, but it's, it's largely in part because technology has changed a lot for hitting the past three to five years, I would say closer to three. So it's pretty new. Yeah. It seems like it, like 20 years ago, how would you do that? Like I, I almost, I mean, there's probably not a whole lot of ways to even figure it out. No, there's really not. You're talking about like I, the first time I was aware of a bat sensor was 2015 I think, and that was a company that like no longer exists. It was new technology. And the, the organization I was with at the time was kind of like, yeah, whatever, like totally blew it off. And now it's like, if we don't have bat sensors, if you don't have bat sensors, you're behind the times, you know? Um, and that was five years ago. So it's, it's moving quickly. Yeah, for sure. Uh, it, with uh, swinging and hitting things in general from a baseball or, or, so, or even softball perspective, I guess, or, I mean, you could probably extrapolate this out to any sport that involves swinging, but in your years as a strength coach and then now, is there any, I mean, it's probably not one-to-one. It's probably, I mean, it's a little bit of a generalization, but is there anything generally that people who are like strong hitters can do from a weight room or a sprinting or a KPI perspective that you've noticed? 
Um, I'll speak generally. Just okay. In general, like when you want to compare pitching and hitting, there's just so much more transfer from raw power and and like absolute strength to hitting than there is to pitching. Like I've seen plenty of 180 pound pitchers who throw above 95, but there's very few hitters who are like just small body that can also like hit the ball very far. Um, and I think that just has to do with like mechanical efficiency is just so much more important in pitching than it is in hitting. So you can have a kind of a bad swing and still hit the ball pretty hard. <laughs> uh, if you, if you're wrong, powerful. So I think, uh, which again, just plays right into my strengths as a strength coach, because it is so transferable. So the stronger you are in the weight room, you really are going to see increases in bat speed and exit velocity. And so it's, it's kind of, it's an easy sell for guys too, because we can easily now say, say like, all right, this guy, you know, squats this much or jumps this high or whatever. It really is any kind of lower body metric. You're going to see it. Like you're going to see the correlation. So it's an easy sell to our players when we say, so-and-so jumps this high and look at his exit velocity and this is how high you jump look at your exit velocity or bat speed or whatever and it's a pretty direct um direct correlation so it's that's absolutely something that goes straight from the weight room to the to the field do you um in terms of i think we've talked about this before uh before the show but in terms of like a technical model of, of hitting itself and a little bit more of the research coming out in regards to the importance of the lower body or versus the upper body and, and how, where do you start in, in, in coaching a swing? Like, is there, is there kind of a, a point that you start at and when you're looking at everything else? All right. I would say like from a, again, from a body, like anatomical perspective, I think every, everything, this is not just swinging, but like, literally everything and i don't think there's many people that would disagree these days is that, that everything is starting with the hips and so if if they're not loading their hips properly that's the first place i go and i, th- I really think that's like almost every athletic movement ever so I, I don't think that's anything really groundbreaking but that's the first place i go with my eyes and so even if there's something happening in the upper body you've got to like go to the source and see what's going on in their lower half more specifically with their hip load, I think than anything else. And I mean, there's research to show that like more novice coaches are going to distal parts of the body and more expert coaches are going to the center of the body um, because that's the genesis of, of all movement. And so, yeah, they might be casting their hands out, but is, be, is that because they can't get to a ball because they're not, properly unloading or they're not loading soon enough is it a timing issue but yeah it's just d- directly to the center of the body that's interesting it makes me think i've come across um i don't know if it was an actual study but it's just there's websites that there's marketing websites that show where people's eyes go as soon as they hit a page or something like that to try to dial in you know what the, the copywriting and stuff like that but it would be interesting yeah. to see where different coaches like elite versus a novice and as the progression goes where where do their eyes go in different like segments and things like that what are they looking at I, that's really interesting i would love to whatever if you you know if you know that link after the show and want to send it to me i think that would be a really cool thing to uh check into sure. uh so and having formally done strength and conditioning for i think almost a, a decade were you in the that industry before mm-hmm. you switched to hitting yep uh, what like from a rear view mirror are your thoughts changing at all on the strength and conditioning industry? Um, I guess towards the back end of your or the back half of your time in it, and then now as a 
hitting coach. Do you have any thoughts on the direction of that profession? Because obviously you were you went you were in those roadblocks where you were doing everything you could, like you said, cultural perspective, all these things, and you weren't seeing able to see those results. But in terms of looking back on the industry, do you have any just general thoughts on, I guess you could say, I I mean, it's very wide ranging and (laughs) open-ended. But if there's any general thoughts on just like either things that you would maybe could be changed within the industry, that'd be positive or things that if you could go back and do it again, that you feel like you could do better. Do you have any parting thoughts now that you're a hitting coach? Oh man. Um, it's a bit of, bit of a sensitive topic in some ways because like there are, there are many reasons why I left the profession, but, um, I would say one thing is just like, I, I hear sometimes I hear a lot of talk about, you know, the suits and there's like a, there's a separation between the administration and strength and conditioning, especially strength and conditioning, because ultimately it's like, how much more different can you get? You've got an administrator that sits in an office with a student, a tie and a whatever, and sits behind a computer and they walk down the weight room and there's some jacked bald dude with a beard screaming at the top of his lungs over loud rap music. And like that person doesn't understand what you do. And so it's very important that you go to them and not sit in your office and sweats and, you know, talk shit about how they don't understand you. Like you have to go to them. You have to put on a suit and go into their office. You have to do it. Like the, it's, I just, I just laughed and in my whole career, fortunately, again, just through like certain mentors and people and frankly, like administrators being open-minded to talking to my, to me and strength and conditioning coaches, Um, but I would like, I would jump into their meetings anytime I could, I would go and sit in hitting coaches, meetings, pitching coaches, meetings, mental skills, meetings, front office meetings, whatever it was, anytime I could, even if that was once a month where I knew a meeting was happening and they just so often the strength coaches are left out, right? The strength conditioning athletic training is just like left out. Like even the sport coaches, baseball, the, uh, hitting and pitching coaches, they would be involved in these you know, higher level meetings talking about higher level topics and the sports performance people will be left out. And I would just force myself into those meetings. And again, thankfully I was let into those meetings, you know, and, and very rarely did I even speak, but just the fact that I was there, everyone's like, what the hell's a strength coach doing here? You know, but then they're like, Oh, what's up strength coach. What are you doing here? And I'm like, I'm curious. I got questions for you. When you said this, what did you mean about this? Like showing FaceTime and going to them is more important than anything. I think because, Again, like I said, they don't like strength and conditioning is so hard because most administrators have no idea about that realm. Most administrators know something about sport coaches. Like I'll just speak specifically to professional baseball. They can read stats. You know, they, they know numbers, especially in professional sports. They know numbers so they can evaluate coaches and understand how a hitting department is doing based off of whatever you, you know, whatever metric, there's a million metrics they can measure with strength and conditioning. They don't get it. So all they see is again, loud rap music, sweatpants, and like some dude screaming and whatever. And I love that culture and environment, but it's very misunderstood. Yeah. So that's a piece of advice, I guess. Also another piece of advice is just like along that same thread, like 
sit at the table and get your voice heard and be a, a part of administration. And if you are complain, if you find yourself complaining about, oh, they don't get it, they don't get it. You either it's like can't beat them, join them. And that's how I feel is that, again, my passion is coaching and human development, organizational culture, getting teams, groups of people to work together and how that all goes down and what that means and what kind of standards you have to hold. And look, I just found myself bitching a lot. So it's either like you sit there and you complain, you don't do anything or you make the change. And that's what I did. Yeah, it sounds like you really have a passion and insight for like the human side of this industry. And I think that it's that's something that we're always pushing towards coaches kind of getting out of just being stuck in maybe just want like periodization organization or exercises and expanding themselves into the more human side. And it certainly makes sense on an organizational level. I know some coaches, I think I'm not sure if I've had them on this show, but I know of a lot of strength coaches who talk about the difference between the people hiring the strength coach and the strength coach themselves. It's an ocean sometimes. And, and so <laughs> that communication is, is, and so we understand each other is really important. It's a really good point. I, I know. So for coaching in general too, and this kind of, maybe this is a little bit of a transition in the chat, but this is something that I think is really important because I mean, the human side is critical, right? And so what do you view as I guess you could say whether you're a strength coach or I think this is probably most present in strength and conditioning because I think that strength and conditioning, the way that we view it, it's almost maybe more from the realm of something that I don't think when people on the outside look at strength and conditioning, they don't think they look at periodization exercises. They kind of look at it as the, the heart of something, you know, it's like that heart of like working hard and t things like that. And so what's your take on what a strength coach can offer from outside of that X's and O's perspective. I know you're just talking about a little bit in regards to, um, you know, obviously there needs to be those communication uh, lines put out, but in terms of making a real impact on athletes, what are some, what, what's like, what is the heart of a strength coach to you in terms of their impact on an athlete that goes beyond, I guess you could say all the traditional exercises and programming and things like that. Well, what's wonderful about strength and conditioning is that it really is, like I was talking about earlier, it is one plus one equals two. So if you are putting in the work, you're going to get better, period. Whereas, unfortunately, in sports, especially in a sport like baseball, you could have somebody who's extremely talented baseball player that didn't really work for it that much, that just was throwing 95 miles an hour at age 16 and that's going to get you really far, even if you didn't work for it, you know? So it really, it like speaks to, I, I still, even though I've left the profession, as I go on in my career, I still will refer to the strength coach to ask about the character of the athletes because somebody can be very successful on a baseball field and not work that hard. But in the weight room, you see people's true colors shine through. And that's also then, from a development standpoint, that's also a huge win of opportunity for development of like a growth of a growth mindset. So if you want to get results in the weight room, you, you must work. There's no, there's not much natural talent that goes into it besides, speed, you know, running fast or something, which is still a skill by the way. So I think, I think that's the most beautiful part about the weight room is that you have to work for it. And so it's a beautiful teaching tool. If you let it be, um, and it's a place to reward people for true effort and not just like, oh, great, here's your player of the week accolade that you've gotten six times this, this year, even though you're not working that hard and you're just a naturally talented athlete in that specific skill. Um, the weight room's not like that. 
Yeah, I, I agree completely. I think that, yeah, that is what we look at. Even the person who's not really inside of it or in sports, they look at the weight room. I think that subconsciously, that's what it speaks to us. You know, I, I really like that you were saying too, the idea of going to the strength coach for character versus the sport coach. Not that the sport coach can tell you, but you know, I think the strength coach is, it just comes with the territory. No. Yeah. You're the sport. The sport coach is always like subject to, Oh, this player does really well in the field. So I really like him or her, but the strength coach will tell you, you know, like the strength coach knows who, who works hard and who doesn't. There's like really, it's very, very clear. I think it's a pretty good litmus test for character um, through the weight room for sure. Yeah. In terms of coaching in general too. And so maybe I'm not sure if this is another shift or maybe it's the same topic, but I, I think that, like tough love would be a good word for it. Uh, what's I, as a strength coach too. And, and I mean, have you shifted in the way that you, I mean, do you, do you feel like players expect to be treated differently at all being a hitting coach versus a strength coach or the way that you approach them or the way you, how does that, how does that work with everything? Um, being a hitting coach, I'm sorry, all you strength coaches out there to say this, being a hitting coach is like the easiest it's so easy compared to strength and conditioning in some ways because every day for the past 10 years, basically in the group of people that you I've coached, it's like, you're always asking people to do basically something that is very difficult for them or they just flat out don't want to do. So like every day you've got to ask people to run hard and train hard and it's just physically grueling. And sometimes, especially when they're there to play a sport whether that's tennis or softball or baseball or whatever they're there to play a sport and some people just flat out do not like the weight room so for the past 10 years I feel like in some ways relative to hitting it's like I've had to beg people to do stuff and coax them into it and this and that and argue and you know and then all of a sudden with hitting it's like guys are coming to me like hey rich can we get some extra work in after the day and i'm like what you know it's like people actually want to do extra of it and it's what they love to do so it's it's also like kind of made me look back and be a little empathetic like they you know when people say like they're here to play baseball that's truthfully is like in their mindset they just they love it um and they should just as much see the weight room as part of their career but they just don't because they're they love hitting they love getting in the cage so that's been just in some ways like a weight lifted off my shoulders of sorts where i'm not having to like pull teeth as much um as i might have done in the past however having said that i'm a big believer in you mentioned tough love and uh just recently i posted something on instagram which was a video of coach augie garrido for texas baseball and i just think i just presented um I presented in the fall at a conference called Slugfest. It's a hitting coaches conference. And the topic of discussion that I chose to present on was um, constraints led culture. And I think it's interesting. We talk a lot these days about individualizing your approach for the player. And, you know, everyone, everyone has a different background and this and that. And I just think, you know, if you truly study, and again, I'm, I'm like, I lose sleep over like organizational culture. Like I'm, I'm, I honestly get bored anymore about listening to like a podcast about squatting. Like I am fascinated by leadership. I'm fascinated by how groups of people work together and teams of people work together and how, you know, how winning teams do it year after year. And so if I've, if I've spent time doing anything, you know, studying anything, it's, it's not anymore that I study periodization or like, you know, reading a book about whatever strength and conditioning. 
I'm reading books about coaches who have been successful at the top level for years and years and years. And so I presented on something called constraints led culture. And basically what it was is like, I've just compiled essentially my own personal research on dynasties because I'm fascinated by different sports dynasties and even different businesses that are perennially successful year after year after year. And just what I came to, to find out is like, I, I have this thing now that I just go by is like no snowflakes. Like there are no snowflakes and I get the individualization and I get that you got to You have to have an awareness of where your players are coming from. And if they're going through, you must have an awareness of that. But at the end of the day, if you're getting groups of people to work together, individualization is probably one of the most poisonous things that you could possibly do with your approach. Because if you're treating everyone different, you're ignoring the team. So I always like now I'm going by, I don't believe in snow, the snowflake approach. I believe in the snowman approach where, you know, you see a snowman and you know, it's compiled of probably millions of snowflakes, right? And there's all these different little individualizations, but ultimately it's a snowman. It's one thing together. And you are aware that there it's made up of snowflakes, but ultimately you care about the snowman melting or staying together and if some snowflakes don't want to be a part of that anymore, you got to let them go. And I have like, you study dynasties and it's like, if you look at the most successful businesses and teams across, across all, all realms of business, there's not this like happy, like anyone can do what they want and everyone gets a voice and whatever. Like it's not all sunshine and roses. And at some point, like there's the standard has to be held. And one of the things that I brought up in, in that talk is like, there's this thing, there's a core core dynasty concept. I call it is you can't play with us at some point. You, not everyone can survive. Not everyone. If everyone can survive in your culture and everyone's happy and everyone's getting a turn, that's high school. You know, we're not we're not in high school. We're not in middle school. That's where that's time to have sports be for fun and community and learning how to work together. But if you're in it to fucking win, there's got to be some kind of standard that's held and the standard has to be high. And that means if you are pushing people to the limits of their ability, two couple things are going to happen. Not everyone's going to be happy because that's a really uncomfortable place to go. Number one. And number two is sometimes you might push them too far. And that's, that's, people don't like to hear it, especially strength coaches, because injuries mean getting fired. But look, yeah, if that means physical injury, that is a part of, of working at the highest level. And you can say it's not, but it is. If you are p- truly and, and wholeheartedly pushing the limits of human performance and you expect people not to break both mentally and physically, you're lying to yourself. And you're probably lying to the administrators just to keep your job. But if you are truly doing that, shit's going to go down and it's not going to be comfortable and not everyone's going to like it. Not everyone's going to be able to handle it. And that's just how it is. And so, again, if you ask any coach, I'm talking about any coach, whether that's Pete Carroll, who everyone believes to be this like happy-go-lucky person who just loves everyone. And I'm sure he loves all of his players. But love doesn't mean that we let people slide and get – and worry about their feelings and blah, blah, blah. And great feelings are great. And they're so important. And again, you must, you should have a pulse on what's going on with people. But at the end of the day, look, if you're going through something and, and I I'm saying this as someone who was going through something, 
I was in total, I was in depression. I was not good for the team. If you're going through something and you can't handle it, then you can't handle it. But the team, the snowman must survive. Even if some snowflakes melt away. That was a really long answer. Did I even answer what you asked? I'm not sure. Um, I don't know either, but it was a good answer. <laughs> I, I, well, I do. Remember, I do want to come back to the Texas baseball coach a little bit because I, I really, I know you had mentioned that, and that was something I saw and I really liked. I what you're saying though, it, I mean, as a, I mean, it. I look at the reasons that I am a strength coach right now because I was a track coach for six years, and was then a strength. I went reverse. I was reversing, <laughs> and yeah, yeah. but I had to go through. You know, I shouldn't say had. I I've, I've gone through the time as a strength coach because I didn't have that organizational ability. I've always been good at the programming and all those elements. Like I've loved that stuff since I was way too young to even say, because people think I'm a huge nerd. Like, like, Oh, you cared yeah. about periodization. We were 15, like, dork. like, you know, like, but I, <laughs> I knew that stuff. And to me, I'm, I'm doing this now. Cause this is something that I need to do to grow and, and fulfill this end of my coaching, um, of who I am. So I, I completely agree with you. It, it makes me think too of, um, like, like uh, even just even the military, right? Like people have mixed opinions on SEAL training and athletes. Like, okay, is it you know specific context, blah, blah, blah. But I mean, there's no doubt that if you like, who's going to go to boot camp? Is the drill sergeant going to be like, oh, I'm going to leave, I'm going to leave you alone, you know, because you're special or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Like you can't, you, <laughs> like, can you imagine? You know, like that would never happen. <laughs> I asked the question. Yeah. But I asked the question. And I, I think that, I think that it's lost. It's lost in many arenas because it's lot. It's at any level where it doesn't matter if you win. So if you are, and no offense, like I'm not meaning this to offend because there are, are excellent programs everywhere. And there are even like cutthroat programs at every level, whether that high school, call it uh, NAI, whatever. But like, let me just ask this question. And, and I want the listeners to think about it. If your job depended on winning or losing, how would you do it differently every single day? So Nick Saban loses two games and he could be out of a job, like two games, one game even, you know, like that is like, if, if you had to win for your job, how would you do it differently? Now let's go to the military. If you had to be successful to save someone's life, how would you do it differently? Is a drill sergeant, as you said, the, the military is a beautiful example of no snowflakes. I don't give a fuck what you're going through. You got to save someone's life. So you either put that aside for the moment, and it's not that it's not important, but in the moment, the team is what's what matters because we got to save someone's life, right? So in the team, and it's not, it's right. We're not saving lives in sports, but in team context, it's like, look, you're going through something with your girlfriend. You're going through something at home. It's not that that's not important, but right now the team is the most important thing. So you got to find a way to put that aside. And that is a principle that will stay with you for the rest of your fucking life. You're going to work every day. Does, do the clients care that you're having to fight with your wife? No, you got to put it aside because at that moment, you're a team of where you are, right? Then you go home and you're with a different team and you got to put your work aside. You have to be able to compartmentalize and to understand, like, to not let emotions cross over. That is a principle of life, to be able, when you're going through something difficult, to not suppress it, not ignore it, not, you know, like, it's a fine line. You're not, I'm not trying to tell anyone to, like, suppress their sadness, <laughs> you know, acknowledge it, but you still got to put one foot in for the other and take care of 
the team, whatever team that is, if that's your family or if that's your actual team or if that's your colleagues or whatever. And again, if you can't find a way to do that, then you should go to a lower level of athletics where it doesn't matter if you win and you're going to get equal playing time or whatever, like that's fine. But if, if winning is your job, then you better, you better be able to swallow some stuff, you know, or if, if lives are on the line, the military doesn't give a shit. If you had a bad day, your focus is on the team. Your, your own personal interests are aside. That's a beautiful, I don't I think that's very positive. That's a beautiful thing. When your own personal interests and personal happenings are put to the side for the sake of a group effort, that's that's beautiful. That's not bad. And again, it's not that you ignore it. It's just that certain times, the group is way more important than the individual. Yeah, as I've had the opportunity to work with as a strength coach through with, that's one of the things that's been great about being a strength coach is you get to work with a variety of, if you're in a system where you work with a lot of coaches i've been able to work with some very good coaches and you just realize that the higher up you go the more organizational leadership matters because in working on the lower levels in my past schools i've worked at you start to see you see big you see really big differences and it's substantial and one of the things that was going around one year with one of my teams was who do i want in my foxhole like basically or, or who do i want in my special teams you know of this team like who which five guys of this team do i want in my foxhole with me and it's it makes you think but it's like well yeah i want you know i don't want the guy you know i want the guys who are the most selfless like that or incapable and it's just it remakes it kind of rewires your thinking about all of it and it's it is it's massive um so like with the idea of the snowman too and tough love tell me okay tell me your take on the the because i thought this was really cool is the texas coach they had lost the game right and like this guy comes in and just and, and we've all been hopefully everyone listens has been chewed out by at least several coaches like multiple times because i think it's it's an important part of life but i think a lot of it's context too and that's where i thought that that video was powerful just for me personally was this guy came in and just like was just ripping his player like can you tell us like tell me about that video Tell us about that video and tell us why you think it was so great. And those guys did go on to win, like that on that winning streak afterwards too. So obviously it was powerful. But what I think was going on there? People are on two sides of the fence of this. Some people watch that video and it completely they're just like, I hate this. This is never appropriate and whatever. And I just think those. I think to myself, those people clearly like never had a coach like that, and probably, unfortunately, they just probably never had parents like that. Like my parents, I mean, and, and I obviously like <laughs> I'm, I'm to one extreme, but I'm telling you right now, I would not be sitting here having this conversation you with you. I would not have made history two times in my life. I would not have been able to handle the shit that's gone on in my career if I hadn't had parents and early coaches, men, by the way, that were hard as shit on me, like so hard on me. But at the same time, you know, I feel sorry for those people who look at that video and say, I can't believe this is a travesty and no child should ever. I, I feel sorry for them because it's clear that probably what happened is they probably had a coach who like didn't communicate that they also loved them because there is a wrong and a right way to do that. And I have had a coach that it was, it went horribly wrong and I didn't respond well to it, but that it's, that's been one person out of out of many mentors and coaches who have been extremely hard on me. And I'm talking about when I was 16, I had a 
softball coach that would rip us a new one if we and it was all effort based right it was not not like oh you you suck at softball and you suck at life. none of that stuff but it was all effort based if we weren't doing the right things and, and and working hard and having good character on the field it was those things that he would rip us for but in the same breath in the same day put his arm around us and go hey i believe in you i know you can do this you're prepared for this you're great like in the same breath be able to communicate both extremely high standards of performance and also extremely high support which is by the way a research concept this is not my opinion angela duckworth wrote the book grit it's a very popular book now but she also has done decades of research in this area and she outlines something called wise parenting it's a basically a very simple diagram and you've got like in and you've got one in one corner it's like supporting versus demanding so you've got for example a high support low demanding parent would be a person who says oh honey you can do whatever you want you're a special snowflake and i support everything and i'm not going to put any kind of standards on you and well you you signed up for the soccer team but oh you want to quit okay that's your decision that's a that's a high support and low demand parent a, a parent that is high demand and high support is somebody who says you know what i really support your decision but my standards for you is that you're going to stick out this season of soccer, even though you hate the team, you hate the coaching, you hate your teammates. You're going to figure out a way to get through it. And I'm going to, I, at the end of the season, you can quit. But my standard for you is that you're going to stick this out. So somebody who holds a high standard, but at the same time says, you know what, I, I do support you. No matter what you want to do, I support you as long as you're holding this level of standard, whatever that is you set. And that is a research concept. This is not my opinion. So the best parents, and she talks about educators, parents, and coaches as being basically the same people, which they are. So if you're a teacher, you have high demands, high support, coach, parent, whatever, it doesn't matter. Anyone who's in charge of basically rearing a child in some way, that is the model of how you develop a greedy person. And thank God, I don't, I, I don't even say lucky very often, but I got lucky to have parents who just nailed it. Like reading the book Grit was like literally reading a, a book about my parents. So they nailed the high demand, high support parenting. I had a couple of early, early coaches that did the same thing, extremely high, high standards for us as young women, maybe not fly today with the tax, the tactics they used, but I'm glad they were allowed to do it. And that's just what I see. And when I posted that video about the, the Texas coach, that's what I see in him as well is he was holding young men to extremely high standard. And in the video, he says, don't you, he says, my favorite line is, don't you get it? This is about life. This isn't about baseball. It's about life. That's like my favorite line taken out of context, going back to what you said, and I know I'm rambling on, but I hope this is valuable. Taking talking about context in my personal post about that video, what I said, that's very important. Those young men that are sitting in that locker room would not have even made it to that point where they had the privilege of getting yelled at by Augie Garrido if they weren't prepared to handle it. They probably had parents themselves and early mentors and coaches that even earned them a seat in that locker room to get the privilege of getting yelled at by Augie Garrido. So it's pretty clear to me that probably those young men in that room could probably handle that based off of their previous experiences with previous coaches. Unfortunately, nowadays, that's not as accepted but to be honest with you, I, I just I saw that video and I just flashed back to like plenty of times that that was me sitting in that chair. And I had no I had no 
problem responding well to that because my parents had already, you know, there was no out for me. If I was going to go home and complain to my parents about a coach getting on me for, for not seeing the bunt signal or, or doing something lazy on the field or, you know, throwing my helmet, you know, like I wasn't getting any sympathy from my parents, none. That's how they raised me. So that video out of context, yes, you would be like, why, what's wrong? But in my, I know exactly what's going on in that locker room because I've already been there and, and they earned, they earned a right to be held. It is a privilege to be held to that higher standard. Yeah, I was on, I love that. I was on a, a podcast, uh, my, my friend and colleague, Dr. Tommy John down in S- um, San Diego. And one of the questions he asked me where we were talking about was what's, what are the best coaches you've had in your life? And it's not the coaches who are the easiest on you. Sometimes there's, there's some who played a different role, you know, but like, I mean, I, I was different than you in that I love my parents, but they were, um, high support, low demand. <laughs> and I didn't get shit together in my life till I was 27, 28. It took me a little while. But <laughs> one of my coaches who had the biggest demand on me was, it was my JV basketball coach. And he was the first person to have a demand on me. Like, I, I don't think I'd ever been asked too much since then. And it was, it was actually such a blessing because I remember my freshman year of basketball is actually looking at making varsity. And I was all excited. Oh, I'm going to make varsity, blah, blah, blah. I didn't because um, of uh, a lot of it just dealing with pressure and tryouts. And I wasn't playing the same way that I usually did. And I think that obviously the varsity coach saw that. And it's good because I ended up on JV and I needed this coach who was, I mean, this is the first time I ever really got yelled at. Like, like, and I got, was, would get pissed. Like, I was just like, but he also loved us and held a high standard and you could tell. And so it was perfect. Like, and I, I've, it's something that I've, I think I always had a little bit of a hard time with it on some level, but I think it's also, I think that was just because I, it's just, you got to get used to having a demand. And I think it's important. It's important that, and I think it's important to also have bad coaches too, where it isn't fair because it life isn't always fair, right? Like you sometimes have to have those bad coaches that aren't fair because I mean, it can't always be, you know, the perfect situation. But here's something curious because it's like, God, I wonder what in you though, that JV coach, there are some players who there are many players I'm sure that are like, Oh, I don't like Rachel or whatever. She's too hard on me because you know, did you go home and complain to your parents and be like, this guy's hard on me and I don't like it? Or did you not? Or did, did you go home and complain and they say, well, bad, he's your coach? Or do they, like, there's so many pivotal moments where you could have easily just been like, oh, he's so hard on me and just quit. Like, that's the first time in your life you've ever, ever had put it, someone put a standard on you. And so unfortunately, like, it's, unfortunately, that's an art that I have not mastered is like, when I put a standard on someone, you just hope that they, they might hate you for a little bit, but you hope that they get through the hating period quickly mm-hmm. so that they can actually see that that's a form of love to have that kind of standard for someone and to look at you and go, hey, you've got more in you. That's what a standard is. It's not you suck. It's like, hey, it's not just, oh, that's not good enough. It's like, hey, Joel, you've got more in you. It's actually the highest form of love to look at someone and go, that's not good enough because I'm telling you right now, I believe, I believe more in you than you believe in yourself. However, if that's the first time you've ever received feedback like that, it can go over really horribly and you could have quit JV basketball and had a bad time and and always look back on that coach and gone, I can't believe he did that. He was so mean to me and talk about how mean coaches are. And then you see the video that Rachel posts and you go, I remember I had this JV basketball coach that used to yell at me and I hated him. Like, how did you get through that? 
<laughs> yeah. No, now I'm interviewing you. Yeah, no, it's a good question. Well, I mean, I, I don't. If you get me started, I'll I will start rambling about my childhood experiences. But I'll, I'll just say, like my my um my response personally was just. As you're talking, I realized this. Like, I think we how we coach is a product of. I mean, I think we all kind of know, hopefully, how we need to coach. The question is, is can you? Because I think if you weren't raised a certain way and if you haven't dealt with childhood issues and if you, there's like, I think there's self-love issues and there's a lot of issues going on. And if you haven't dealt with those, I think it's extremely hard to go to an athlete and hold that standard if you don't hold it on yourself. And I think that we talk a lot about this stuff in, in the world of coaching, especially strength and conditioning, because it's in the, at the forefront of strength and conditioning. And let's, I mean, it's any coaching job and the higher up you go, the more important it is, like you said. But, but going back to my JV coach too, though, I, I would just get mad. Like I would just get mad. I didn't, I'd never complained to my parents about anything. I mean, for me, my life has been more or less just, just do it. Like I have, I have a ton of drive and I'll just figure it out. But I think I've, I've shoved down a lot of scar tissue along the way in that aftermath, you know, mm-hmm. just, just basically putting my head down and just making it happen. And so my thirties has basically been um, unpacking a lot of that to help myself be a better coach. <laughs> if that makes sense. Um, Cause I've been yelled at definitely unfairly. I've had a lot of bad, co- like I loved actually, even the yell to be, I'd be mad at him for like a, an hour or a few minutes. And then I would like, I'd be okay. And I'd be like, okay, this is good because the, the he had support for you. He was, and you knew he had support. So, I've had coaches who weren't that way though, you know, like, and those, I I relied on the coaches for the demand, but I think that you really, I think that we can really get into the nuances of personality and and being raised and raising toddlers myself. I realize there's a lot that goes on between raising toddlers and raising athletes. And anyways, it all, it all comes together. I, I, I'm actually really enjoy talking about this stuff because I think this is the first show I've really been able to dig into this. So I'm glad that. Yeah. It's it's the same thing. Like, you know, people, and again, people don't like that either. It's like they're kids, you know, and even if they're not truly kids, like toddlers, they're just, they're just learning. They're, they're learning. And, sometimes they're operating off of the emotional maturity level of a toddler. And that is not, I'm not trying to be just, you know, rude or funny. I'm, I'm just saying like some people it's, it's, you know, motivation. Are they motivated by consequences? Are they motivated? Like, are they motivated by teamwork? Like what are they motivated by? And most of the time, if you're working with a young, especially um, in my field, I work with a lot of young Latin American men and they're coming from very diverse uh, economic backgrounds, very diverse educational backgrounds that look nothing like their American college graduate counterparts. So you can easily talk to uh, an American, a guy who just graduated from Vanderbilt and played in the College World Series about teamwork and caring about your team, and that's all he fucking knows. But these Latin American players, before they get signed to play professional baseball, it's likely that they have not played on a team ever like could you imagine that we've played on teams since we were five in, in america but they probably have just played like backyard baseball they've played in showcase tournaments for scouts um, but they've never participated in a team where they truly truly have like cared about you know i grew up playing with girls for four years four seasons you get to know them you care about them as people they might not have known that and so if you talk to them about teamwork that's not a deep value that they have they, they have to operate off of consequences. Like, you, you, you know, there's, there's different layers. And I think it is like raising children sometimes because your toddler needs consequences to understand boundaries. You can't say, hey, you know, eat your vegetables because they're good for you and vitamin A and vitamin K. Really? 
like they, they don't care about that. They care about if I eat my vegetables, I get to go outside and play. That's that's how that goes. There there has to be a clear structure. So it is like raising kids, and I can learn a lot from parenting if I ever have kids, for sure. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm sure you'll be a great parent someday. Having basically, we talk about um, what it was it like. We have X amount of big kids, you know, or kids we work with as a coach. Anyways, it's all the same. It's all the same principles. Yeah. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Uh, so last question. This could be. I think that there's there's probably a few ways this could go, or there's probably a few answers to this, but. So last question I have for you is looking back on your life, like what are some of the things that were the critical hardships that made you who you are now? Like what were the, those points where it was low point and you know, you, maybe you didn't know where you were headed, but what made you, what hardships made you Rachel Balkovic where you are? I mean, for sure. I already mentioned, but going through the yips and, and when I say depression and I have no problem talking about this, I think it's, I think it should be talked about more, but um, again, mental skills, by the way, didn't exist. So I didn't even like know what was going on with me, but I was, I was literally just like, I would just cry every day. I would be like crying in my room. And it was like, I, at the time associated that with like, okay, I wasn't playing or whatever, but it was just, I was going through a depression. So losing my identity as an athlete, where basically within a matter of a couple months, I, for all of my life had thrown a softball without even thinking about it. And then all of a sudden I could no longer throw a softball. Like it fell out of my head. And so you talk about having an identity crisis. Many athletes deal with that as they're exiting a sport, but I was still in the sport. I was at a division one college. I was supposed to be a starting catcher as a freshman. And all of a sudden I could not throw a ball back to the pitcher. Like the most simple thing ever, complete identity loss, complete loss of confidence. And like, I already talked about it. It just has in some ways shaped me as a coach and I see things through a very different lens. Um, so that for sure. And then also just the whole, um, pretty treacherous, pretty like tough time getting into baseball, being blatantly discriminated against. I've told the story a million times, so I'm not going to tell the whole thing here, but I so much so that I was so desperate that I changed my name on my resume to make myself look like a guy. Um, and that worked, by the way, if you want to hear the story, it's on a million other podcasts, but um, just uh, having to fight for something and also like, yet again, an identity, I talk about identity all the time, it's so important, but I had been at that point, so this is 2013, I had done like six internships, you know, I had Exos on there, I had Arizona State, I was a graduate assistant at LSU, strength and conditioning is like, I mean, great, great strength and conditioning background in that regard. I had already traveled abroad and worked in the Dominican Republic. I was partially bilingual. I had done an internship for the St. Louis Cardinals. And then I was told that I wasn't going to be hired because I was a woman. And that was by a multitude of teams that denied me that, you know, opportunity because of my gender. And so I had to go from like, okay, I had just worked for LSU and the St. Louis Cardinals. And then I had to go be a waitress and work at Lululemon to to like make money to support my unpaid internship at Arizona state that I had to do because I was discriminated against. Like that was a rough year. And, and I just had to, again, learn to how, learn how to value myself, even though my identity, like I felt as if I had lost my identity, like I was a strength and conditioning coach and I was waiting tables. And so that whole idea of just, you know, being able to have, value in yourself and self-confidence no matter what uh hat you're wearing at the time 
Um, and it's really dangerous when you get yourself wrapped up in, into your identities and a logo or a job when those things can be taken from you. So I think those times for sure are, are two, two periods in my life that have greatly shaped me. And I'm thankful for them. hundred percent thankful. Yeah, I guess it'd be very cliche to say our, our hardships shape who we are, or the valley creates the mountain, right? But you've certainly been through a lot. 100% true. And, and I think that once you go through a couple of things like that, I can remember even in that year when I was, I was sitting out of a season of baseball, I can remember thinking to myself, like, I, on, I honest, honest to God, because I'm a huge visualization, manifesting, like, law of attraction person. I was like, this shit's going, going in a movie someday. Like I, I didn't, I was worried. It was tough time and I was plenty of tears shed and plenty of confusion, plenty of worry. I was so desperate. I changed my name on my resume. Like there was dark times, but I started thinking like, this is only going to make a really wonderful story for Joel's podcast someday. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. And here we are. Fantastic. And here we are. Here I, I manifested that. <laughs> hey, I, I'm, I'm happy to be the recipient of your manifestation here. So uh, maybe I was manifesting that, you know, when I started this too, to eventually have you on. And so it's been great talking to you today. Uh, before we go, Rachel, could you, I, I think you, there's something you've been working on recently that you'd like to share. So could you tell us about that before we end our time? Yeah, so, um, well, recent times, we've got a little thing called the coronavirus going around. And, um, you know, it's just been weighing on me the past few days where uh, currently MLB is on a break and I'm off of work, but I'm not out of work. And I have a contract and I, I thank, you know, God or the universe that I do, but there are so many people that don't. So I, I'm starting a GoFundMe as of tonight, that will be available on my Instagram page that you can go and donate to. And just weekly, I'm going to give to probably a different cause each week. The first cause I'm going to give to is just supporting um, kids who are now out of school and maybe not able to get meals um, that they would have had provided by public schools. So there are some organizations out there that are helping in that way. Um, there's just there's so many people that need help right now. I'm going to pl pledge $5 a day that I'm off of work from Major League Baseball um, and if it's just my pledge, that's fine, but I want to invite other people to donate to it as well. If they don't know what to do, um, I'll just do the work of finding who needs the money. Um, so that's what's going on. And you can just go to my Instagram, which is just rachel.balkovec and hopefully click on the link and even a dollar would help. I'm sure a dollar provides actually probably a couple of meals, you know, to a young student who might need that. So Anyway, that's what's going on, and I, I wish the best to everyone in that situation as we move forward. And just just be a good human, man. Like, I just want to put that out there. You know, this is going to be a tough time for probably a very long time to come. Even after the virus goes away, the economy is going to take a huge hit, um, and that's really terrifying for everyone, myself included. But for some people, it's already hugely affected them, and we're, like, on the extremely front end of this, so... Anyway, hope you can find it in your heart to be good. Yeah, right on. Well, hey, I'll be the second person on that list. So and everyone listening, make sure you guys check that out. We'll put a, a link in the uh, show notes of this podcast when it comes out. So thank you, Rachel. Thank you. Appreciate your time. All right. Thanks a lot. Mm -hmm. 
that does it for episode 194. Thanks for being here with us. And yeah, definitely go visit Rachel's uh, GoFundMe page. It is The link is in the show notes uh, of this episode on JustFlySports.com. So I'd strongly encourage you to go make a contribution to that. All right, so signing off for this week. As always, check out our sponsor, SimplyFaster.com, suppliers of high-end training technology, KBox, which I've been using in my uh, small backyard area these days as a big driver of my own workouts. So, and also a good time to be creative in that realm. So again, thanks to Simply Faster. Also, if you enjoy the show, enjoy what we're doing. Please, you can help us and support us by leaving us a rating or review on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever you're listening to. We appreciate your ratings, your feedback, if you have anything or you, any guests or anything you want to hear more of, uh, you can hit me up on Instagram too. Leave me a message or visit the contact us on justflysports.com. Tell us what you want to hear more of. I'm always open and I want to expand this show to meet your needs and meet you guys where you are at. That does it for this week. We will see you guys next Thursday. Have a good one.